Well, good morning. All right, how are you guys doing this morning? Good, yeah, good interaction, love it. You guys have had your coffee? It's exciting. Yeah, it's a good morning, it's a good morning. Uh, my name is Seth, uh, I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Salem. And uh, boy, I tell you what, uh, one of the things I love doing uh, is worshiping together. Boy, that was so good. My heart just feels like it's just, it's just pumping a little bit faster right now. So, uh, so glad that you guys are here uh, this morning. Uh, we've been in this series uh, called Rooted, not Rooted. Uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> Heidi, wherever you are. Just kidding. I'm not kidding, actually. It's Rooted. Um, We've been in this series called uh, Rooted. Uh, it's out of Ephesians, uh, and, uh, and we're, we're at this, this critical point uh, in the text. And this last week, if you were here this last week, we were supposed to actually unpack this, this passage last week, uh, and kind of just in the, the prep and in the time, just felt the, the Spirit uh, really say, let's slow down and uh, let's take some time to, to process this a little bit differently. And so we kind of spent some time in prayer last week. Uh, and uh, this morning we're going to, you know, kind of jump into this a, a little bit more. But I want this morning to be really practical because this is a very, very experiential text. It's about God's love. And so I really want us to know and understand uh, and begin to step into God's love a little bit deeper this morning. So I hope that that's what we can accomplish uh, this morning. Um, and so I want to begin uh, just by reading it. So if you guys got a Bible, uh, I invite you to open uh, to Ephesians chapter 3. Three uh, verses uh, 14 through 21. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay uh, because in first century time uh, they didn't have Bibles. And so you can just listen and just let it kind of filter through the heart and soak it in. So, and, and by the way, if you don't have a Bible, um, if there's, I don't know if they're in the pews yet or not, but if they're not, you can go and talk to somebody outside and we'd love to give you uh, a Bible. So, Ephesians 3 14 to 21, here's what it says. It says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you uh, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. If you guys have been with us for a while, um, you, you may know that, I mean, I oftentimes will use a clear board and uh, my, my, my general posture, I think, in terms of teaching is to help teach and help us process uh, through visual, but also just through the text and, uh, and to understand it more clearly, more simply that way. Um, but I, I wanna be upfront with you this morning. Uh, there's something about this text that, that specifically just evokes emotion in me. There's, there's a lot of emotion in this passage for me. And so uh, even though I, my normal posture might be to do, be a little bit more calm in teaching, I just want you to know that, that, you, that you might hear me get a little excited today uh, because this is just what, what stirs in my heart when I read this passage. And so I just want you to, to kind of hear uh, that up front. So... Um, 
This last week, I, I heard a story. Uh, this is a, a great story. It's a true story, by the way. It's a, a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter uh, who uh, came to her dad and said, Hey, Daddy, uh, what do you do for work? And, uh, you know, this is, a, this is a fun question, right? And uh, so dad is trying to talk to his two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, and, and he says, Well, sweetie, um, you know, I, I, I will go into work tomorrow, and I will work on my computer most of the day and then I'll have a bunch of meetings. <laughs> you sold that really well, Dad. Yeah, yeah. and that's, that's oftentimes what it is for us, right? His daughter, uh, who's two and a half, looks at him, and she goes, wow, Dad, that's pathetic. <laughs> it's funny to us, <laughs> maybe not to him. Um, you know, it's probably shocking for a couple different reasons. One, uh, why in the world does my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter know the word pathetic, uh, and where did she get that? Uh, two, uh, she said that about my job. <laughs> and three, and this is what really comes out of this, is what he talks about it, and he said, this is an aha moment for me as, as, a, as a dad and as a worker. He said, because she was absolutely right. And that's shocking to him. Because what he's like, this is an aha moment for me because he goes, what I realized in this moment, in that moment, was that I was telling her the what and I had lost sight of the why. This is just what I do, right? And if this is all that I do, guess what? It's boring. It feels meaningless and purposeless, right? There needs to be this why underneath and behind what it is that we do, why do we do it? And I think that sometimes the same thing happens in our own workspaces. We go to work and, right, like we can just focus in on the what, and at the end of the day we're like, man, I'm just jumping through hoops. But I think it also can happen in church. Like we can focus on the what, focus on the what, and we miss the why that's really behind. And when we started this, this series, uh, we posed a, a, kind of a, a bunch of different questions from the 1950s and 60s to today. Uh, and one of those questions um, from today's world that they ask about the church has just continuously been, been rising in my heart. It's like it just keeps bubbling over in my heart as I, as I wrestle through this text. And here's the question. Does your belief, does Christianity, does your belief in Jesus actually transform lives? Does it actually transform lives? Right, that's a powerful, powerful, powerful question. And as I process through this as a church, I think this is significant for us because as a church, and even as a pastor, we have to remember, right, that we can set up discipleship plans galore. And we can run children's and youth ministry and adult Sunday school, and we can run them until we are blue in the face. But unless the Holy Spirit shows up, it's moot. It's dead. It's nothing. There's nothing there for us. And it's only by the work of God that these things change our lives. Right? You see, we can, we can set up all, like, you're like, man, Seth, I am struggling with such and such sin. And I could be like, great, let me just give you 50 accountability partners. That's a lot. One for, I don't know, I maybe say 60. Maybe one for every second of the day, you know. I just keep texting you. 
right? We, we think about this, and because like, the reality is, is that, that, that addictions won't stop, and struggles won't stop, and, and we can keep showing up, and showing up, and showing up, but unless the Spirit of God actually shows up in your life, it's vain. And so for the reality is, is that what Paul is talking about in this text, I think, is that he's going to say, there are things in life that should force us to our knees, because we can do that over and over and over and over again. And we go, like, I just, I've been coming to church, I've been going to work, I've been doing the things, I've been doing the what, but I miss the why. And what Paul wants us, I think, to understand in this text is that it's just at the heart of this, it's at the heart of even part of it, his theology. Is that you can be blue in the face about all that you know, you can be blue in the face about all that you do in life, but unless you're wrestling and growing deeper in the love of Christ, it's not going to be worth it. And it sounds cliche, but, but Paul is showing up. He's like, Seth, if you would just, if you would get down on your knees and if you would just ask and say, God, like I, at the end of every single day, here's what I want. I just want to, I want to be, I want to fall more in love with you. I want to understand your love in deeper and deeper ways so that I can be rooted and grounded in love, that I may be filled with the fullness of God. And there's this why. Why are we here? So we can fall in love with Jesus. We can understand who he is and what's going on in my life bigger, right? And it's like Paul just wants us to remind us. He's like, Seth, I just, I just want you, to, I want you to, to listen to the Spirit for a second this morning and say whatever it is that you're envisioning for you, God wants to do bigger. In fact, the gospel is so much bigger than we give it credit for. So much bigger. And so Paul starts in this passage, he starts with the posture. This is all a prayer, these verses, right? 14 through 21. And he starts with this posture. And here's what he says He says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Before, like for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. By the way, if you were to go back to the beginning of chapter three, you would find the very same words, for this reason. It's like, well, why? Why for this reason there? For this reason, that doesn't seem to work. Well, what happened, most likely, is that Paul started his prayer in chapter three, verse one, and then he got caught off guard and he starts writing about something else. And so what I love in this passage is that he, he's, this is a very real example. I think unintentionally, where we can go, we don't have to pray perfectly. Right? Do you, ever, do you guys ever do this? Like, you're praying, and you're like, God, dear, dear Jesus, for this reason, I, wow, it's really, really nice outside. That's a, wow, that bird. I, I've never seen that bird. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Right? And then we go back to it. And, like, sometimes this is not, this is not uncommon. You think, like, oh, I do that once. No, you're like, it takes 10 minutes to get through a 30-second prayer because we're like, you know? Right? And I, it doesn't, we don't have to pray perfectly. Paul starts his prayer, and then he goes off to talk about the mystery of the gospel of Christ. But then he comes back to it, and he's going to begin this prayer for us. And he says, for this reason is how he starts. And you say, well, what is that? What does that mean, the for this reason? What reason? How many reasons? Is it one? Is it many? It, it really encompasses all of those first, those first chapters, but most specifically, what he's talking about is chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And it's where Paul talks really explicitly about the human soul and the human need 
and what God's plan of salvation really is. You see, um, if we were to grab this for a second, you know, we, you know, show you just the nice, clean canvas, you know, like, if you go back to the beginning of creation and you, and you kind of picture this as like maybe the human heart, this is the soul, right? So as Adam and Eve exist in the garden, everything is the way that it ought to be. There's no blemish, there's no sin, right? There's none of that grossness, right? It's perfect. Uh, us, the depravity of the human heart. This is really, really not good. By the way, if we have three services, this would be bad because I'd be covered in paint. These are nice clothes and I have paint everywhere. My wife's going to yell at me, right? And what Paul is doing in these first verses is that he's just painting in this and he's putting in these black marks. He says, by the way, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, And I think for many people in the world, sometimes, and even for people who know this is not the case, but somehow unconsciously we believe that maybe this is what my soul looks like apart from Jesus. Like, it's only like half bad. It's only half dark. The other half is good, right? Humans are inherently born good, and so I can, I can work my way through this. I can do good things and right, all that stuff. And what Paul, he just keeps going, and you want Paul to stop talking, to stop writing, because he keeps writing. And he, he's like, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. By the way, the person that, that, you, that you followed, yeah, his name is Satan, right? He's like the antithesis. He's the opposition. He's the bad guy in this story, right? That's who you followed. And it's not just that, right? He says that you, you actually, you lived out the passions of your flesh whenever you wanted. Like, whatever that you wanted to do, you just did it, right? And so whether it's anger, it's lust, it's, it's whatever that is, right? It's in our hearts. We just follow it, and we just go, and we go, and we go, and we keep living in that. And as Paul is writing, right, it's like Paul keeps writing, and he keeps, he keeps like painting this dark, bleak portrait. And at the end of this portrait, right, you find that there's really no room left for anything that's good. And you want to believe that he's wrong, but the reality is is that he's right. And we look at this and we go, man, maybe if I just have that one little bleak spot, I'll feel better, right? This is me. This is sin and grossness, but, but this is me. And Paul's like, cool, Seth, you think so? Watch this. No, that's not right. The whole thing, is covered. And this is his point in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. He says, this is who you were. He doesn't say this is who you are. He says, this is who you were, and I need you to understand that. You were lost and without any hope. There is no brightness in this color. There's no color. There's no light. There's nothing good about it. But God, who is rich in mercy, guess what he did? He sent Jesus. And he came and he took this painting and he swapped it out for a brand new one. A brilliant, perfect, clean, colorful painting, right? And Paul says in his prayer, this is why. This is the reason. He goes, if you just bow my knees before the Father, because I understand, I want you, the Ephesians, to understand how great God's love is for you at the end of every day, that this is what's most important in the Christian life, is that you just understand how much he loves you. That this is, this is who we were. 
And he replaces it, and he gives us something beautiful. He says, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family on heaven and earth is named. I love that. Did you know that, that in their time, the, the, the standard posture for prayer was this, was just standing. And this is what the Spirit has kind of put on me this week as I process through this, as, as I think, because Paul is inviting me. He's, he's saying, Seth, I want to invite you to your knees, okay? So if I'm standing and I'm praying, this is the picture that came to me. I don't know if this will be helpful for you. Sometimes I feel like in my life, uh, prayer has become like a kid's birthday party where they have a pinata that's full of candy. And it's like, I get up and I'm like, you get my baseball skills, I get as big a bat as I can, and I'm ready to whack this thing and I wanna hit it. Because really what prayer is about sometimes is just hitting God with a stick and collecting the goodies. Like whatever he drops, that's what I want, right? And we kind of pray aimlessly and we just hope that we get good things out of it at times. Right? And what Paul, I think, is just, as I was reading this, it's like Paul is inviting, and the Spirit is inviting me to my knees and saying, Seth, if you're on your knees, it's hard to swing at the pinata. Right? Because there's this whole new posture. And just by changing our posture, we can create a space and an environment for the Spirit to work a little bit more because we're open to what He might want to do. And it changes how I process and how I talk with God right? And so Paul goes on, and he tells us that he has this purpose in his prayer. So it's not just a posture. He says there's this purpose, and it starts in in verse 16, right? And it says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. The request here is for power, to be strengthened with power, right? Um, Here's this question. Why? Why does Paul start with this? At the very beginning, his very first request is to assume weakness, is to assume that I need something that way. He doesn't pray for like something else. He just prays. He says, I want to pray that you have power, that you be strengthened with power. So it's this assumption, right? This implication in the text. This is something that we desperately need. And we know that the disposition of our heart, because of these types of things, the disposition of my heart is to want to just do it on my own, right? It's the self-reliance. I just continue to do it, right? And we live in a culture that, that reaffirms this over and over and over, right? You ever heard somebody say, gosh, you got this. You can do it you're strong enough? And what scripture says is no, you're not strong enough. You can't do this on your own, right? This isn't about what you have to offer. This isn't about your strength. This is actually about your weakness. And there's this this really kind of powerful irony that there's actually something incredibly powerful about being weak. Because when we are weak, it means that we are empty. And when we're empty, we can be filled, which means that God's power and strength can come in. But if it's all about me, it doesn't work, right? And so there's something very powerful about our weakness. And I love how Paul demonstrates this in in the text earlier in chapter 3. He says that I am the least of all of the saints. Notice that Paul doesn't say, I am the least of all of the apostles, right? Because he's like, hey, guys, there's like 12, 13 of us. Guess what? I'm the bottom, I'm the least of all those guys. Cool, cool. Paul, that's, that would be like saying you're the worst person on the all-star team. Look how good you guys are. But you're, but yeah, but you're, but you're, yeah. Let's just agree. You guys are all great, but you're the worst of the great, <laughs> right? 
And he says, no, I am the least of all of the saints. He says, you take the collective whole of humanity that have been chosen by Christ and you put them in the same spot. Guess what? This is where I am down here. I'm at the very bottom. I'm the least, right? And I think that for us, we have something tremendous, right? Tremendously important here for the significant for all of us because I think that each and every one of us, in order to grasp the love of Christ in the way that Paul wants us to in this prayer, the implication is that we have to take the exact same posture. That each and every single one of us in this room, in some sense, is fighting for last place. Right? That'd be kind of weird. I'm pretty bad. Well, I'm worse. No, well, I'm worse. Well, I'm worse. Well, no, the reality is just, it's not that. It's just that we're the least. That I, that I present, this is who I am before the Lord. I, I have nothing really to offer in my relationship. If anything good comes out of me and my walk with Jesus, guess what? It's God. It's not me. It has nothing to do with me. It's about the Spirit working in and through me. And yet, for many of us, we are so in tune with this idea of, like, we need to prove ourselves to God. We think, gosh, I got to show up. I got to show God that I can handle this situation. The next time I'm presented with whatever that is, the opportunity to sin, I'm going to say no so that he can look at me and be like, okay, now I'll work in you. Right? We have this need to, 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 show, to show this before God, to prove ourselves. I think that for many of us, guys, we are skeptical, or at least maybe we're not just skeptical. Maybe we just don't know or realize how powerful God actually is. This is crazy. What does it say in the text that this power comes from? According to the riches of his glory. I want to share, so this, this is going to take a little bit, but I want you to, to hang in with me here. Um, Sometimes we, we think about uh, people that you, you read about online, like Elon Musk, and you go, wow, that is incomprehensible how, how, how much money he has. It's incomprehensible. It's so massive. He's so rich. Well, this week um, I Googled, I have really good typing skills, I Googled um, the, the most expensive houses in the world. Top 10. Do you want to know how much money it will take you to get on the bottom of the list? Number 10, it will take you about $128 million just to be at number 10, right? Number 10. And then you go all the way up to number two. I want to show you number two. How unique is that? I don't remember his name, but he lives in Mumbai. Um, This is a 400,000 square foot home. It has 27 floors, six of which are devoted just to cars. Has an entire car servicing station uh, inside uh, of it as well. It has a a health spa. It has a ballroom, a yoga studio, an ice cream room. (laughs) If If you have that much money, like ice cream, it's pretty high on the list, right? Yeah, yeah. Dippin' Dots, for sure, straight, straight. I want a never-ending supply of cookies and cream Dippin' Dots right here next to my bed. Yep, that's what I want. That's what I would do, right? Just being honest, right? Um, it's got multiple cinebl- uh, cinemas, and it's including one 50-person theater. Um, I'm sure it has lots of other amenities. It's not listed, but I'm sure they have lots of bathrooms, and they're pretty nice, I'm guessing. Um, there are nine elevators, three helipads, 
And guess how many people it takes on staff to keep this running clean and smooth? Six. I'm kidding, 600. <laughs> 600 people. It's crazy, right? Estimated worth is, is $1 billion for the house. Uh, number one on the list is actually Buckingham Palace, and so I don't even know why they put that on the list, because like, that's purchasable, <laughs> you know? Like you show up and you're like, hey, I'll, I'll give you $5 billion for it. <laughs> Cool, royal family's like, yeah, cool, yeah, we'll just go live over there, right? This is crazy. I want you to continue with this movie for a second. Uh, this last year, um, Elon Musk, who is the, the founder CEO of Tesla uh, Cars Incorporated, and his, his estimated net, net worth was $30 million. In one year, Tesla skyrocketed in its stock, and it, and it boosted him over both Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos to be the richest man in the world at $195 billion. 30 to 195 billion. Okay, it's pretty crazy, right? A lot. Um, the equivalent of the average American spending $1 in life is the equivalent of Elon Musk spending $2 million. If, if, a piece of, if a grain of rice was worth $100,000, which is mind-boggling to me, if a single grain of rice was $100,000, he would have 93 pounds of rice. And, and, I, and, I, and I look at this and I go, dude, if you give me just one, <laughs> just, just, just give me one, one grain of rice out of 90, you won't even know it's gone. It's like it, it falls to the floor and you forget about it. Just, like I want to go search through his house and just find $100,000 randomly on the floor. You know, like one grain of rice, $100,000. I'm like, you give me one. You know what I could do with one? You give me five, I could change the city. I could, I could renovate and build and, and, and provide things for people in need. Just five grains of rice out of 93 pounds. It's incomprehensible to me to even think that that's actually true. By the way, if the richest house in the world is $2.9 billion and you have $195 billion, what kind of home do you even buy? The point isn't to, to, to mock any of that. All I'm saying is it's, it's just incomprehensible to me to think about how wealthy that is, how much money that is. And yet what, what we say about God is that th there's this power, and it comes from the riches of his glory. And if I have a hard time processing that, you, I'm... It blows my mind to think about how incredible and amazing and how extravagant God's power actually is. It's so big. When you think about the riches of his glory, the word glory is oftentimes used to be the comprehensive character of all that God is. All-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, unchanging, all compassionate, all kind, all merciful, all gracious, all loving. And we read these words, and we're like, yeah, that's true. Do you realize how big that is? It's infinite. It's grand. It's extravagant. It's so massive, right? Here's this thing. Like, if I think about it, like, just one grain of rice, if you were to take a needle and go to God's power and just, like, just pinprick him and go, ha-ha, I got you, and then try to put that in your body, you wouldn't exist anymore. 
because he's so powerful. And yet what God says is, I want to fill you with strength. I want to give you that which only I can give you. I want you to be strengthened with my power. Here's my question. Do you guys feel, still feel like you need to do this all alone? Do you still feel like I should do this in my own strength? It's incomprehensible to think about God in this way. And it only happens through the work of the Holy Spirit and he does it in your inner being. It's in your inner being. I love in Ezekiel 36, right? You go back and you find that, that what God says is like, wow, everybody's really terrible. Here's what I'm gonna do about it. I'm actually gonna set up a time in the future and it's through this guy named Jesus, that's spoiler alert, right? What he's gonna do, he's gonna take out your heart He's going to put in a new one, and then I'm going to take my Holy Spirit, and I'm actually going to put him inside of you. So you have access to who God is, all of the power that's right there. He says, I'm going to put that inside of you. And guess what? Then Christ may dwell inside of you. That's his second appeal. Like, would Christ, I want, I want, Paul says, I want Christ to dwell inside of you through faith. Nikki and I um, came up with this really horrible idea once. It was at our wedding. That <laughs> sounds terrible, right? Um, we, we had this painting, and we wanted, we wanted everyone to be able to participate with the wedding, and so we had it painted this color, and each person would come and draw something that was unique to them. Uh, but before we knew it, what happened was that these people, I'm not going to put any names or, or ages on them, but they came and just went... <laughs> And just like smeared. I was like, this looks really, really nice. I walked by. Oh, that looks really nice. And I came back later. I was like, wow. It's horrific. <laughs> and then for a while, we're like, what do we do with this painting? What do we do with it? We're like, ah, uh, we should throw it away. No, we can't do that. It's part of our wedding. We should throw it away. No, we can't. We can't, we can't do it. The, the idea was to put this up in the front of our room. And I go, I, I, just, I can't do it. It's horrible. It's horrific. Throw it in the attic. And that's where it went went into the attic. And I think that sometimes what happens for us, because when you look at this word dwell, he says, I want you to dwell. I want Christ to dwell in your hearts. Guys, the moment that you become a Christian, Christ dwells in your heart. But here, this, this idea of taking up permanent residence, this idea of interacting, I think, has something to do with this idea, like, like as, as early Christians, we, we look at these things and we go, wow, like God is amazing, he's so good. Look at this incredible painting that God gave me, and we put it in the forefront of our home, and we are so excited about it. But as time goes on, we go, ah, you know what, it doesn't really fit there anymore. Maybe it should go over here, and we put a different one there. And eventually, it just starts shifting around the home. Before you know it, it ends up in your attic. And Paul's like, dude, Seth, take the gospel story out of the attic and put it where it belongs. Put it front and center in your room and show it off to everyone you can. Because it's the extravagant nature and the love of Christ that, that really makes this thing worth it. You go, why is this really, this, this story is so, so, so good. And this is where Paul goes. He goes into this, this middle verse. He says, so that after you may be, like, like it's after Christ dwells in your heart, right? So not only are you filled with power, Christ may dwell in your hearts, but I want you to be rooted and grounded in love. Rooted and grounded in love. He doesn't say I want you to be rooted in power. He doesn't say I want you to be rooted in knowledge. He doesn't say I want, even though like God is powerful, it takes that much power to do this work inside of us, right? But he says, I don't, I don't want you to be rooted in that. I want you to be rooted in love. 
And it's like as I get down and forced and brought into this posture, this, this gosh, like before God, it's like as I'm in this place, is that the roots can grow deep and wide and long and they can continue to go into the ground. And the more that happens, the more grounded I become and the more stable I am. And the greater my foundation, the deeper I am, the more God can build on top and can use because rooted is agricultural and grounded is architectural. So what God wants to do both in and through us. And this is where Paul says, he says, I want you, this following this rooted and grounded love, he said, I want you to comprehend what is the breadth, the length, the width, and the height of God's love. Take a look at this picture. Sorry, next one, I'll come back to that. This is the temple of Artemis. Um, it's in this spot. This was that we talked about this at the very beginning. This is the largest building, the largest building in all of antiquity, right? And so if you are a worshiper of Artemis or if you're some random Joe Schmo in Ephesus, you say, hey, I'm gonna go check out the temple today, see what it's like. You take step in this place and you look up and you're like, wow, this place is huge. Look how, look how tall it is. Look how long it is. Look how wide it is. This is, this is huge. Guys, if this building is this big, how big must Artemis be? She's powerful. She's so good. She's so incredible. The guy's like, man, it takes me five seconds to walk across my apartment, but it takes me two minutes to walk across the temple of Artemis. It's so big. And what Paul's like, guys, Ephesians, take the roof off the temple and then look up. Take the walls out and look that way. Take the walls up that way and look that way and look that way. And that, to all of eternity, is the love of Christ. So much bigger, so much more powerful that we oftentimes give it credit for. And we look to our horizon and I go, if I can look through this window right here, these doors, and I can say, I can see the building right over there, right? Paul says, you can comprehend, you can wrestle with the dimensions of God's love, but guess what? There's something even more significant than just comprehending and wrestling with it. You can take a step right into it. And with each step, you get to do this. Wow. I'm gonna go right. Wow. We begin to see how big, amazing, incredible God's love actually is. And it evokes the majesty of the process. Because when I was younger, I used to talk to people who were older than me, and I would ask them, I'd say, hey guys, what's, a, what's the one thing that you're learning in your, in your walk with Jesus right now? Because I was curious. I wanted to know. And, and over and over and over, uh, the people who were older than me, they would say, Seth, I'm just really learning how to trust Jesus. And I, <laughs> pish posh. That's so boring. You're mature. You're old. You're supposed to move on. You've trusted Jesus already. Just keep moving. Keep doing it. Trust. Trust. What's trust? You see, I used to think when I was young that as I grew mature in Christ that I would change the painting and add color and brightness. And what I've learned with each passing day is I just add more black. And this is, the, this is the amazing thing about the story is that 
Paul says, this is who you are, and this is what you'll continue to do. And Jesus says, I love you nonetheless. You will never be more loved or less loved than you are right now. There's nothing you can do or not do that will make you make me change my mind. And you don't have to play the what if game. You don't say, but what if I did this? Or what if I did that? Or what if I, what if I never read my Bible again? What if I never went to church again? What if I, what if I, oh, there's all these things. And he's like, no, I love you perfectly. And at the end, guys, of this prayer, is this, this final climax in the prayer where he says this. He says, I want you to be filled with the fullness of God. You look at chapter one and you know that we're already filled with the fullness of God in some way, shape, or form. And you look at this and you say, how in the world is that possible, Seth? How can I be filled with the fullness of God? I want you to imagine. See, that word, that word filled means to the brim or to the top. I want you to imagine you walk to the ocean with a cup. And you look out over the vastness of the ocean and you take your cup, just take it in, just, just think about how big the ocean is, how vast, how deep, how long, how wide. And then I want you to take your cup and I want you to plunge it into the water. Where, who, I don't know if anybody's going to the ocean uh, near, but go plunge your cup into the ocean and what you'll find is that your cup is full. And the ocean, if that represents God, I have access to the fullness of God and I'm filled by it. Can I be filled completely in the sense that I, I take up the whole ocean? No, because I'm just a cup. I'm just a human. But I can be filled with the fullness of God and I have access to who he is. That's what we can experience in the love of Christ. Okay, I want to go back to the, the living free slide, and then I will close up. Um, this is an answer to prayer uh, for us because we've been praying that God would provide um, a female leader to lead uh, a women's group for living free. Uh, it's, a group, uh, it's a group for people who struggle with addictions. We have one for men, and we have one now for women. So we want you to know that that exists. And so if there's stuff going on in your heart, if you go, man, I just feel weak, I can't do this, uh, this is a great place to start. As together we wrestle with the grace of God uh, and, and work, uh, work through the gospel, right? And so if you have questions, I want to invite you to that. But I also want to point out, guys, that this isn't just for these types of things. Like God says, I want to fill you in the fullness of God, which means like every area of my life, big or small, I want you to have it. And that's my prayer for us at Salem. Because here's my thought, here's my question. Why don't we hear prayers like this anymore? Why don't we hear prayers like Ephesians 3? We hear prayers for other things, lots of other things. Why don't we hear prayers like this? I received a, a devotion from a friend this week who had sent me. He said, I just read this and thought of you. And in the devotion, the guy says, he says, maybe the problem isn't that Christians are too dissatisfied, it's that the problem, the problem is that we're too satisfied. I, I wonder, guys and gals, if we are far too content with the small, if we are far too content with the things that just concern me and in my life and what God is saying is, guys, I, look, look at what I'm doing don't, don't, be, don't, be, don't be content with just the small things. Think bigger. Think, think big. Because here's how he ends this prayer in verse 20. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. God says, I want to work big. 
I want to give you some questions. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and we'll sing. Here's, here's my questions for you guys this morning. What's your big Ephesians 3 prayer? What's it for you? What is it that you need God to show up in a big way? You go, man, God, I just, this, is, this is where I need you to show up and do some really big stuff in my life. How about for your friends or your family, for Salem, for Fargo-Moorhead, for the large C Church? I invite you to wrestle with those questions because God collectively before us wants to work big. Let's pray. Father, as we finish uh, this morning, I pray that, that in our hearts that we would be sensing this, the work of the Spirit, the Spirit, this powerful Spirit who, who is at work within us, Lord, that you'd be drawing us to your character, to be drawing us to the story, that, that we would be reminded of how good that you are that we would sense with this overwhelming, this overwhelmingness, just, just how much you love us and that we would be drawn to our knees. That we would find ourselves just, just, just each and every day just asking, God, would you, would you fill me with the fullness of God? That I would be rooted and grounded in love, that I'm no longer content just to, to wrestle with the dimensions of your love, but that I would step into it and experience it on a daily basis that I'd be reminded about the greatness of this gospel story and that we would be a people who continue to allow you to work powerfully at work within us. And as we think about the future, Lord, give us big dreams because I know that's how you want to work.